All right, everyone. So today we are live with Andrew Stratley-Lates. He is part of the group at Red Pill Religion. He is active on Twitter in the apologetics community. So I just want to say thank you for coming on today, Andrew. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, Zach. And uh, it's my pleasure to be here. So the first thing I want to address before we get into this is maybe you could just talk about your name, Andrew Stratulates, because I know that it's actually not your actual name, but it's just kind of a name you go by here on in the apologetics world. So maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on that, who he is, you know? Well, sure, definitely. Uh, so uh, the way that I usually pronounce it, and, and uh, I like it because it rhymes with my real name, is Andrew Stratulates. Um, and Andrew Stratulates was a uh, third century Roman soldier who converted to Christianity um, and was martyred um, because he refused to deny Christ. And um, he has some miracles associated with him, primarily about miraculously like winning battles with him and a handful of his soldiers fighting against huge number of, of heathens not wearing armor and they would win the battles um, without a scratch on them. Um, and what I tend to do on Twitter, at least metaphorically, is in sort of engage in battle uh, against uh, these these forces of non-belief or, or anti-Christian forces, and and that's why I go under his name is to to give him sort of the credit and to to sort of follow in the Christian tradition of not taking any credit for for myself. Um, and the, the other thing is, I tend to be a very intellectual person. I, I tend to be very thinking and, and sort of words and stuff like that. And, and so it's really important to have a reminder that it's not just our words that matter, but our actions as well uh, in the Christian life. And that's also why I like using Andrew's totalities as my uh, pseudonym online, so. Sweet. So. My first question for you is kind of a little bit maybe about how you were raised, like kind of like the religious dynamic of your family as you were growing up. Sure. Um, so uh, I was raised Lutheran. I was baptized Lutheran. And uh, my family is all religious, but we were relatively not non-practicing um, through, through compared to, to a lot of things through my early uh, life. Um, and uh, when I be became sort of an adolescent, even uh, around the age of 14 or so, I started to become a very serious agnostic. And it was a serious agnostic until I was uh, about 20 and uh, actually converted to Anglicanism. And, um, you know, uh, my, my family was pretty laid back. Most of them are believers. And uh, but that they weren't uh, very pushy about it. And, and at least in my family, there was sort of an expectation that as you entered adulthood, that you would uh, basically go through an agnostic or atheist phase, um, which was helpful. And and the, the, the key sort of lesson that, that I took from my family's tradition is God has no grandchildren and that uh, God only has children. Right. And so eventually, as you mature into adulthood, you have to incorporate that and have your own direct relationship with God and Christ. 
and you can't just rely on what your parents have have provided you through the faith. And and you know that this this is sort of my experience, and and so I have a lot of sympathy for people that are are doubters or or skeptics or agnostics um, who are seeking the, the, the truth earnestly, and that that's sort of part of the reason why. Uh, I got into apologetics. Um, the, the other is that there there is a strain, especially online, of of militant atheism, which basically wants to bully out not only just Christianity but all a serious discussion of religion uh, out of the online space. And so it seems to me, and and part of that is to to counter that and show that that no, uh, you don't actually have to seed the discussion and the space to people that are anti-religious. Yeah, definitely. So you talk about you were an agnostic and you kind of came back into the faith. Uh, so what were some of the main factors that led you back into the faith from your agnosticism? Sure. Uh, so, um, uh, and, and basically when I was an agnostic, I really seriously tried to think through what the consequences of there not being a God would be. And fundamentally, I came to the conclusion that if there was no God, there was no ground to meaning, and that nihilism or something equivalent to that would be the appropriate response. And I have some backup in this, in like Sartre or Camus and, and even Nietzsche um, looked at it the same way. And uh, basically, the conclusion that I that I've reached was that life was indeed meaningful because no one, especially me, doesn't look at um, non-existence as a live option. Basically, right? If life is meaningless or we give life its own meaning, then at every possible juncture, the question is: Do I continue existing or cease existing? But that's not how we actually act. We actually act as though there's a reason that we have to go after. Um, and so that, that, that basically made uh, atheistic materialism a, non, a, a dead option. Um, and then from there, I started looking into different systems of religion to see what, what was a possibility, right? So uh, the culture I grew up in was Christian, and and because of that, I had a great love of science, um, and so that was one of the fundamental things that 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 needed to to tie into this was how does science work with all of this? And um, for me, uh, I look, did uh, analysis of um, basically classical theism. Um, Christianity, uh, Judaism, uh, Islam, some Native American uh, systems of belief, um, Hinduism, and um, even Sikhism. And, and basically what it turns out to is that if you're looking for something that has a really strong understanding of what the meaning of life is, you're, you're basically left with uh, either Judaism or Christianity, and uh, basically, the the key thing to me was realizing that Christianity explains the human 
tension with meaning better than anything else, including Judaism, specifically in the life of Christ. Um, and so that's that's uh, basically I realized that if I was to have a meaningful life, I was aiming for the most complete meaning that I could have, which was through Christianity. And then after I sort of made that leap to faith uh, and oriented myself, I, I discovered in, in Anglicanism a really thoughtful way of looking at um, the Bible and the wholeness of the, the Christian faith in a way that brought all of my mind and rationality to bear on the problem as well as, as that, that commitment that I had made. Um, so, and, and that's really sort of an abstract way to look at it. Um, but, but basically that, that to, to summarize it in more spiritual language, my life was crying out for an answer to what is the meaning and the, the, the one that answered that most fully was Christ. Um, to, yeah. to, to summarize it. Yeah, that's a great way. It's a great journey. So just moving on here, what led you from just being a Christian and giving your life to Christ to your more apologetics work? Like what was the inspiration for starting your Twitter account and some of the things you're doing in that direction? Sure. Um, uh, honestly, uh, uh, the, 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 the issue that I ran into was I was going into these places that were aimed to be uh, places for Christians or, or seekers to discuss the faith and, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, I realized that these places online where that was happening were actually being uh, people that were young in the faith or, or whatever were being extraordinarily bullied by these anti-religious elements. Um, and basically, eventually I got fed up with it and thought that, you know, you know, no, you're not going to say these lies like that religion is irrational or that, that you have to check your mind at the door for Christianity. Um, and basically the, the aim was to, to push back in a, in, in a very Christian way, but an assertive way that that no it's not acceptable to bully these people and we have the rational backing to show that that you're you're ridiculing something that is actually um more sophisticated than your own position and, and that that's sort of what led me to it is i got sick of the, seeing these bullies really trying to attack and harm the faith of uh these naive people who were young in the uh, young in their christian walk basically yeah, definitely. I appreciate you standing up. So when did you start your account? Uh, at this point, it's about three and a half years ago. Okay, yeah. Well, I really appreciate it because we need apologists. I mean, we always need more people. We, you can always have more Christians trying to stand up for the truth. So I know that you're involved in Red Pill Religion. It's a group promoting Christianity. The link to Red Pill Religion is actually in our description if you want to subscribe to them. They do a lot of different things. So maybe you could just tell everyone a little bit about Red Pill Religion, what it is, what the mission is, what you do in Red Pill Religion. Sure, definitely. Uh, so it, it started out uh, of a project that we started about three years ago called the Escaping Atheism Project, um, where basically we wanted to, from a secular and cultural 
cultural perspective, give a critique to this sort of movement atheism that that had grown up online. Um, and and since then, we've sort of expanded. Um, the, the core members of the team are all Christians. And, and of course, we have a, a, a bias towards Christianity and think that the world would be a much better place if everyone converted. And, and for each individual, it would be very good spiritually for them to convert. But we have friendly relations with anyone who, who takes religion seriously. Um, we've had discussions with, um, and, and you know, part of it is we, we live in a world where there are lots of different religions and, and we have to navigate that. But we've had discussions with uh, Muslims, with, with uh, pious Jews and, and rabbis. We've even had discussions with pagan reconstructionists and so on and so forth. Um, and now we're, we're starting to sort of expand into more social commentary and investigating the things that are sort of uh, laid by the side of um, uh, mainstream media, but but tend to get a lot more interest online. And, and um, uh, my friend Max, who, who started it with me, has a background in the, the, the men's human rights movement. Um, so that, that's what he's passionate about. And so we sort of aim at uh, helping young men especially become full Christians. So although we aim for everyone to do that, but, but that's sort of where a lot of the energy goes towards. Uh, uh, because of Matt's prior work, and he's really passionate about that. So, yeah, great stuff, great summary. Yeah, everyone, I, I encourage everyone to check out their stuff if you haven't already. So, my next question for you is: I know you're active in the debate community, so I'm just curious. First, I'm curious about how many debates have you done? Oh, probably at this point, like maybe only half a dozen uh, official oh. debates that have been streamed or what have you. I actually thought it was a little bit more than that. I guess it's just because of your buddy who's talking about you guys would debate anyone, which, I mean, I obviously a lot of respect to you guys for that. Well, so um, what is – so you've, you've done about half a dozen debates. What are some of the biggest takeaways, maybe things that you've learned or things that you've learned about maybe non-believers from your debates? Sure. Um, I guess uh, one of the key things is uh, – a lot of times, uh, the, the more militant non-believers or anti-religious atheists, or however you want to put it, um, they oftentimes have rhetoric that they've learned from other people that they don't necessarily accept themselves. And that you have to be sort of aware and cognizant of that in, in sort of a debate format is that you, you aren't actually trying to reach the person that you're debating, but you're trying to reach the audience and give a sort of counter narrative of what's occurring. So that that's one. Um, the, the other is that there are lots of sophisticated issues that 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 take more than just one debate to, to work through. So uh, I guess those would be the two key things is that your audience is not the person you're debating, but the people watching, and that if you're actually trying to struggle through on a conversation with something, uh, a, a formal debate isn't going to, to, to be sufficient. Um, and, and then the, the, I guess, the third thing is that there are just literal falsehoods that these people um, 
talk about religion that that are from literally like Marxist propaganda from the Soviet Union um, that that have somehow made it through the, the cultural filter um, and and are received, but they they have the stink basically of Marxism on them uh, that 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 most people don't detect anymore, which is sort of strange. Um, so yeah, those would I guess be the three the three highlights that I would say. Yeah, that's good stuff. So my next question for you is: We're gonna talk maybe a little bit why to believe God exists. So I think you're obviously a strong believer, and I love your Twitter bio. It actually says that atheism should be thrown out the window. So my question for you, my first question for you is: Why do you think atheism should be thrown out the window? Sure, um, uh, be, because basically um, it's false in, in two ways, right? It's epistemically false, right? That if you look through the logic of it, 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 it it's wrong. And then the other thing is it's not a map of meaning that we can actually follow in our lives. To, to be an atheist, a, a true atheist, and take the proposition seriously and, and to embody that in your life, would actually mean to to basically pursue non-existence um, because if you take atheism seriously that means that there's nothing sacred and if there's nothing sacred there's no highest value to orient your life and life around um, and so it's fundamentally unworkable as a philosophy of life to take that proposition that there is no god and and bring it through cons consequently and and so even just on pragmatic grounds, basically no one's an atheist, um, uh, fundamentally. And and even Nietzsche talks about this. But but the the key the key reason to believe in God is that that that, that I tend to follow is meaning is real and true, right? To to have a meaningful life is actually not just asserting something or playing pretend, but it's actually trying to engage in the world in a real way. And if that's the case, and, and, and that there are lots of steps to the argument, but basically that means that our relationship to reality has to be in some sense similar to our relationship to God. And to have that sort of relationship, God needs to have an existence or God needs to be. And so that, that that's that's what I would say is the, the key key reason to believe in God or why it's reasonable to do so is because it it allows us to relate to reality and to reality in the truth um, and embody that not just intellectually but in our entire way of life and manner of being. So it's a great point. I think naturalism is flawed so many ways so how would you respond to the atheist that says i'm not saying that there is no god i just lack a belief in the i lack a belief in the gods that have been presented uh, uh well then the the question is is that lack of belief reasonable or not right and if they're just saying, I have a lack of belief, and I'm not going to say whether it's reasonable or unreasonable. Then I'll be just, I'll just respond with, oh, well, I'll just assume it's unreasonable and go on uh, about my day, right? Uh, the 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 key thing with the lack of belief stuff, which was um, 
uh, it came to the fore in the 1970s, is it's related to this idea of who has the burden of the proof in the discussion, the philosophical discussion. Um, and the, the, the trope here, or the, the, the strategy is, instead of saying, I'm the atheist, you're the theist, and both of us have half of the job to do, the claim or the implicit claim or the, the strategy is to put all of that 100% on the theist and the, the atheist who lacks belief doesn't have to do anything. Um, and, you know, this may or may not be fair, but, but we have to point out that this is actually what's occurring when you just say that atheism is a lack of belief. Um, and, you know, uh, I, uh, the, the, Anthony Flew is the, the guy who came up with the lack of belief definition. And that the hilarious thing is, is in his 70s, after he retired, he finally read Aristotle and he became a theist, uh, not necessarily a Christian, but a theist. And he wrote an article and he said, actually, based on what I know about from Aristotle, the burden of the proof is now on the atheist. And and he he's the one that came up with the lack of belief, and the the theist has the the, the burden of proof in the seventies, and he he rejected it at the end of his life after he retired and finally read these old books, um, and so basically that's what I'm saying is that it's a rhetorical trick, um, and people sort of take it on because it's very a very effective rhetorical trick, but it's not a really honest one. It's not like two parties are in a debate and we're trying to get at the truth. It's trying to shove off of all of that onto the opponent. Um, huh. Wow, that's actually really interesting. I had no idea that the guy who came up with that actually became a theist. It's really interesting. So my next question is we kind of talked about arguing for Christianity, why Christianity is true. My question for you is why do you believe that God exists? I mean, we've kind of talked about this a little bit. Maybe you could give a more... Um, give more details, you know, talk a little bit why you believe that God exists. Sure. Uh, so, so fundamentally, it comes down to two possibilities. One possibility is that we're able to know the truth, right? That, that, that the, the thoughts in our head can actually match up with the truth. If that's possible, then the consequences of that are that the universe is rational, that we're hooked up to the universe in the right way to form those true beliefs. And then therefore the universe has a providence governing it and providence governing it or a rationality governing it is what God is. Um, and, and all of these are tied together such that if you take one of them away, the others fall apart. Right? So actually if we'd like us, assume the contrary and reason there that there is no God, then the most likely explanation for existence is natural selection. And natural selection just selects based on reproductive um, fitness, not on knowing the truth. So we would just form beliefs that are most beneficial to having more children, basically. And those may or may not match with reality. They just would cause the right behaviors for us to be reproductively successful. Um, and and that's sort of the one of the key things is I believe that human rationality or the human mind can know truth. And so if that's the case, then that implies that there has to be a ground of that that is basically benevolent providence. 
Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, so you believe the guy exists. Why do you believe that Christianity is true? Because that's a that's still a big jump to go. Because you could be, you could say God exists and be a theist or a deist. But why do you believe that Christianity is true? Sure, definitely. Um, and there are two, I think, very strong arguments for Christianity. Um, and I'll, I'll go ahead and start with the one that is not my favorite. But uh, Christianity has the best developed system of natural theology of any religion. Uh, th that means that we have the best understanding of how do we understand nature and God both through using our reason. And Christianity has the best explanation of that in Christ the Logos, who not only um, provides that in our own faculties to do as individuals, but revealed himself in history to sort of capstone that in 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 uh, both his preaching and the, the preaching of the, the Hebrew church before that, and in uh, the revelation of Christ on the cross and resurrection. So that, that's one very key important part. The other part is what's usually called the spiritual anthropology, which is what is man or what it, does it mean to be human? And, and we have a lot of contradictions, right? We're individuals, but we're in community. We do wrong, um, but we also know that we do wrong and can't stop it. Uh, we are physical beings, but we're spiritual beings. And all of these things are, are in great tension. But the only religion that, that I've studied that actually brings all of those together in harmony in, in a full system with nothing distorted or nothing left out is actually Christianity. Um, and that that and part of this might be my direct spiritual experience, but and that happens through the explanation of Christ, right? So so to, to give a, a concrete example, the problem of evil is a problem for every theist. Uh, but it's different for the Christian because Christ, who is God, God literally takes the suffering on the world onto himself to redeem it. And, and goes far deeper into not giving an intellectual explanation, but spiritually taking on this problem and actually conquering it directly than, than any other religion. And in and, and every theistic issue, there's a Christian explanation just like that, where, where God basically knocks it out of the park um, in the Christian system as opposed to others, at least in my opinion. So, actually, that's a great transition into my next question for you is talking about how we can address, because, I mean, you're obviously very involved in social media and YouTube. You get a lot of the trolls, and you see these common claims that they'll say again and again and again as their arguments against not being a Christian. So, we'll just go through a few of these, but one of them I actually had listed here was the idea that Jesus' death wasn't really a sacrifice if he knew he would rise from the dead. Actually, if there's a debate between Richard Dawkins and John Athletics, and Richard Dawkins calls it petty, that God would just make himself man to rise from the dead. So I'm just curious why you think the resurrection isn't, I guess you could say, petty. Sure. Or if um, it really is a sacrifice, yeah. Hello? Did I lose you there? Hello? 
You good? You there? Hear me there? Yeah, I hear you now. I'm sure what's going on there. Can everyone that. listening here? Okay, I think I I got you now. No idea what happened there. Uh yeah. Uh basically my, my headset broke in, so I'm 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 running off of the laptop itself. But uh basically what I would say is in, in one sense Richard Dawkins is, is correct that it's the most humiliating thing that God could do would be to uh, tabernacle amongst the flesh, be betrayed, and then humiliated on the cross. Um, but why why is Christ's sacrifice not petty itself? Well, and, and so this, this gets into a really fascinating thing about eternity, right? So God is eternal, but the crucifixion happened in history. So the, the Orthodox view, and this has backing in from the Church Fathers, is that Christ's throne on, on the earth is actually the cross. And it's not that he just experienced the crucifixion at one time, but he actually takes on all of the suffering of our sin eternally at, at that moment and and experiences it eternally so it's not just that he had happened something happened to him that only was like for whatever it was six hours or 12 hours but it actually occurs eternally and he's eternally taking it on and so in that sense dawkins just doesn't have the correct understanding of it at all of what christ is doing on the cross Okay, yeah, it's a great one, great answer. Um, so the next one is this is the one I probably see the most, and I'm sure people involved in the watch atheist YouTube videos or things like that would know that's most common is the idea that there is no evidence for God. I can't tell you how many times I've seen it, and I'm sure how many times that you will see it is the idea that there is no evidence for God. So I'm just curious how you, what your response is when someone says that there is no evidence for God. Sure. Um, so th there are a couple different ways to, to look at what evidence is. And the, the key thing to keep in mind is uh, when people don't define what they mean by evidence, you know they're just engaging in a ploy, right? So evidence can be several things. Evidence can be the actual premises that you argue from. Um, evidence can be what makes it evident to an, a specific person. Um, or evidence can be the more raw, the raw material of a more general argument for the truth or falseness of something. Uh, and, and I mean, depending on the definition you use, belly button lint is evidence for God, uh, because you can actually take belly button lint and argue like from contingency or potentiality and actuality that God exists. Um, and, and then sometimes they'll be, do something like evidence is something that's repeatable, verifiable, and testable. But if that's the case, then there's no evidence for anything in the past. There's no evidence for history. There's no repeatable, uh, testable, verifiable thing that lets us know that, for example, George Washington was the first president of the United States.
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that extreme form of skepticism is actually, it's dangerous. And I think it's almost kind of a way out of the serious conversation of whether or not God exists. So at least that's the way it seems like to me. It's kind of like, I feel like they're like, I don't see evidence for God. You know, that's kind of the way I see it when someone says there's no evidence. So I guess we'll go with another one that another common atheist objection that we'll see online is the idea that God is a murderer. So I see this one all the time. It's like, I will never worship your God. Your God's a murderer. He's jealous. He slaughters people. He commits genocide, things like that. So what's your take on that? Take. Uh, yeah. Well, basically it comes down and it's really interesting because if you poke these people, uh, far enough, usually they end up having like a utilitarian um, ethic, which is that uh, acts don't matter, only the consequences. Um, and with that, that, the funny thing is, God definitely can't be a murderer under utilitarianism because utilitarianism is what, what are the consequences, right? So uh, let's take an example uh, that is logically possible. Let's say that literally every human being receives salvation, right? If that's the case, um, or every human being gets the offer of salvation, right? If that's the case, and for that to occur, Noah's flood had to occur, then, then under utilitarianism, you can't condemn the flood because some greater good came out of it. Um, and that's sort of fundamentally the issue, is that God is not some guy, God is the sovereign of the universe, and and he's he's in charge, and um, he's the one that that we trust to bring the maximally good outcome to, and and you know the the other thing that sort of frustrates me when I engage in those types of discussions is that they get upset about like the the war against the Amalekites or Noah's flood, but they seem to forget the fact that everyone they know will die and they don't condemn God for the fact that death exists in the universe. And, and part of this is I think they intuitively realize that these types of things aren't actually God's fault, but our fault. Um, and the, 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 that's the key thing is if, if you're going to condemn God for Noah's flood, then you have to condemn God for the existence of death. And if you do that, then the question is, well, why does death exist? And in, in, in Genesis, it tells us quite plainly that death exists as a mercy so that we don't get condemned to hell. And that, that it, it, it offers repentance and the salvation of, through Christ Jesus, who, who harrows the, the grave and, and, and offers salvation to, to all the dead. And, and so th that's, that's sort of the key thing is that they aren't being very thoughtful about the consequences of their condemnation. Yeah, definitely. So I have one final question here before we're going to just transition, transition into a little bit of Q&A. There's just some questions in the chat that we'll go through. My last question for you is how have your studies in apologetics and Christian theology affected your personal walk with Christ? Oh, yeah, that, that's a very good question. Uh, I guess the, the key thing that, that's happened is it's made me realize how much 
choice we have about both following God and the 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 details of creation that we're to engage in as we we mature as Christians that we're not all called to be the same thing um, and we all have talents that we have to use but one of the things that God loves is when we use our talents creatively and and that that it's not total subordination but he wants us to be co-creators with God uh, with himself and to to engage in this sort of uh, shared artwork that is our lives and 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 creation in the universe, and I, I guess uh, even apologetics is in some sense that because we're creating new ways of looking at things that that are helpful and beneficial to people in their spiritual walk. Yeah, it's great. So now we'll just transition to a little bit of just Q and A from the live chat. Does that sound good to you? Perfect. Sweet. So there's a few questions here. The first question is. From all things pass away, uh, he says, "Does our perception come from God?" Uh, indirectly, yes. Uh, well, a couple different ways, right? So, uh, first of all, you can actually get direct revelation from God, right? That that God reveals something to you um, uh, into your mind directly, and then uh, God also made our biology and our minds so all of those things come from god too so either indirectly or directly yes all perceptions come from god okay great uh next question comes from samuel park he says how does andrew you deal with the hiddenness of god like why is god hidden the problem of divine hiddenness uh, yeah i know this is a a bigger issue for for other people or or it seems to get a lot of um interest but it's really difficult for me to sort of answer that because uh after seeking god is not hidden from me any more than than any of the other people that i love are so the the aspect of divine hiddenness i think comes about partially from our own sins and partially as a way for God to uh, encourage us to develop spiritually to get to know him. So that would be my answer to that. Yeah, I mean, I'll add a little bit to this because it's actually something I've been looking at a little bit recently. I think that there is a lot of evidence for God, but there's not enough to prove that God exists in a, like a mathematical way. I mean, I could be wrong here, but I don't think that you're going to be able, I don't think that you're going to, God's not going to show himself in a way that would force the Richard Dawkins and the militant atheists that don't want God to exist. He's not going to show up in a way that forces them to believe in him because God loves everyone and he loves everyone, even atheists, enough to not force them to believe in him. Because a lot of the times that's the case is that they just don't want there to be a God. So let's move on here. Next question says, uh, besides the cumulative case, what's the best evidence for the belief that Jesus died on the cross? Uh, well, uh, uh, he said beside, besides the Gospels. Besides the cumulative case, like the idea that you put all the pieces together and it makes sense that Jesus died. So maybe like, I think he means like an individual piece of evidence that really um, 
shows that. So I think you could include, you could say the gospels, but the idea that Jesus actually died. Yeah, um, I would say uh, the probably the 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 accounts uh, of Jewish historians that Christ was crucified or Jesus of Nazareth but were crucified are the single strongest point that that uh, that he was actually crucified. Yeah, definitely. I think that, I mean, all the Gospels say that Jesus was crucified. And I mean, that's the central fact that Christianity was established on that he was crucified and rose from the dead. So it makes sense that there was a guy who was actually crucified, you know. So um, we're going to skip the general question. Uh, it says, what do you guys think of the modal ontological argument? Do you want to go first, Andrew, you know, talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Um, I believe the modal ontological uh, argument uh, is sort of the modernized version of Anselm's ontological argument using modal logic. Um, it's not very personally compelling, but it's interesting because it's the only proof of God that I know of that has been verified by um, a computer. So that if the one premise, the, the key premise is something like uh, the greatest, the maximally great being cannot fail to exist. If that is true, then there, uh, there is God. Um, and everything else sort of falls through uh, from that. And, and the, the, the most useful way to look at ontological arguments are actually uh, sort of an inversion, which is, not that they're talking about God, but if you can think of something greater than whatever you have in your mind, what you're thinking of is not God. Um, and that's uh, more more useful in apologetics for that. Yeah, I mean, I basically copy you and I agree with everything you're saying there. So, I mean, yeah, you just stole my take on it, I guess. <laughs> but I'm not super, I, I mean, I know the, I'm not super familiar with that specific argument. I know the ontological argument, not the, yeah, I need to catch up on some of these things. Uh, we'll go through one more question here before we wrap things up here. Uh, this guy, Samuel Park says, Andrew, are you a substance dualist? Uh, no, I tend to think that hylomorphism is the correct way to look at things, um, which is that things are broken into form and matter and that things that are actual have both form and matter, and that, that things like the human soul are the form, and then the material is the matter, um, and that they're not two different substances, but they, they end up being a unity. Um, and and that, that seems to solve most of the issues uh, quite elegantly with spiritual versus physical things. Um, so, that's it. Sweet. Good stuff. So I think that's where we're going to wrap things up. I just want to say again, thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on tonight. I learned a lot. I'm sure everyone else did. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And I'm happy to have a chat in the future if you like on any topic. And yeah, everyone, God bless and have a wonderful night. Yeah, I'd love to.
Um, yeah, God bless. I would just encourage everyone to remember, if you haven't already, be sure to follow Andrew. His link to his Twitter is in the description, and the Red Pill Religion links are also in the descriptions, the first links. And if you enjoyed this video, be sure to subscribe and like it. And you can follow us on social media or follow our blog. The link is in the description. You can become a Patreon and support us financially. My goal is actually to reach $100 a month. I'm like 15% of the way there. So then I could do this as a part-time job almost. And I just want to say thank you all for listening. Have a blessed day. And remember, big questions need good answers. See you next time.